A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. John Calvin. I do not. And don't you ever say I did. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. <laughs> There's probably a, a balance between, I believe you have to know Christ, but... God is in hell. He is. And someone knows this for sure. All of mankind is going to end up somewhere in heaven. <laughs> My mission really is to just help people of faith, especially, to re-examine this issue, to realize the church has got things wrong in the past. For those who are gods by faith in his son... <laughs> Right? 2 Corinthians 3.17 Victory in the name which is above every name There's no exception for rape or incest uh, It's an extreme law and Right now, bones, ligaments, tendons In Jesus' name Get out here right now So put your trust in the sovereign Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome to episode 6 of The Master's Dog. I am your host, The Evangelical Norm. So today we are going to jump back in with the uh, Faith and Beliefs crowd. Uh, we are going to listen to David uh, talk about nothing, really. Um, it is about 5 minutes of pointlessness, but we're going to let him talk about it and we're going to respond. I might stop in the middle of it. I might let it play all the way through. Um, we'll see. But we are going to go ahead and jump in and let David speak. We may grab an ad here. Um, I've been getting them more and more recently, so we'll see if we actually get to listen to David or have to listen to an ad first. But there he is. Okay, guys. So for the last uh, almost 200 years now, people have been trying to provide a naturalistic explanation for how Joseph Smith could have produced the scriptural masterpiece that is the Book of Mormon. For almost 200 years now, critics of the Book of Mormon can't agree on how Joseph did it. But in the beginning, there was one prevailing popular theory, the Spalding-Rigdon theory. Let's dive in. 
okay, so it's not that anybody is trying to give a naturalistic reason. The Book of Mormon is false. I don't care how he did it. It doesn't make any difference how he did it. I don't have to provide a way of how he did it. You, I mean, the burden of proof is on them to prove that he did it the way he said he did um, beyond just heartburn. That's that's a little offensive of a statement, but it's true. I don't have to provide you a naturalistic way that Joseph Smith uh, did the Book of Mormon. I I don't have to provide anybody the way that J.K. Rowling wrote the Harry Potter series or how Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings. They sat down, they wrote. Joseph sat down with his face in a hat and he told a story. That's it. I don't need to do anything other than that. And uh, and there you go. So, but let's let David talk about what David talks about. Oh, and the other thing, literary scriptural masterpiece? I don't think so. The first person to propose the Spalding-Rigdon theory was a guy named Philastus Hurlbut, soon after he was excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In fact, he was excommunicated from three different churches that we know of, all for issues dealing with immorality. But anyway, after... So, okay, so now here, here again, we got to talk about this, because this is, this is a classic uh, tactic. So you get somebody who, I mean, immediately your, your intent is to discredit them. Now, I mean, again, dude has an unfortunate name. Dude probably did everything that David is about to say he did. Probably has no credibility anyway. But does the fact that he'd been excommunicated from different churches have any bearing on this? I don't think so, but maybe it did. But this is a, a, t- a typical tactic of trying to uh, cast uh, aspersions upon his credibility from the beginning. Um, again, we're, we'll get into more of it here as we go, but this is classic. This is, I mean... When I first left the Mormon church and started attending a Presbyterian church in uh, Salt Lake City, all of the, when I would argue with people online about Mormonism, they would always ask me, well, where do you go to church? And then I would tell them, and then they would start pulling out all the things about my church. I had people try to, to, you know, early form of doxing, trying to get to me and find out, oh, what sins have you committed, and da-da-da-da-da. And it was all intended with the intent of uh, removing credibility. And so again, I mean, it, it, it's really pointless to what we're talking about, whether or not this guy was excommunicated from excommunicated from a hundred churches. It's really not the point of the story. After he was excommunicated from our faith, he dedicated himself to destroying Joseph Smith's name and character. I'll get you for this plan if it's the last thing I do. In his travels, he obtains several affidavits smearing Joseph's name. Some of them come from neighbors and family of a man named Solomon Spaulding, a former preacher and unpublished author who died in 1816. According to these affidavits, these people remember Solomon Spaulding reading part of a manuscript to them 
that contains names and details later found in the Book of Mormon. If you want to read the affidavits, I'll put a link to them in the description, but as a summary of them, let's hear what the notorious anti-Latter-day Saint author Fawn Brody said about them. It can clearly be seen that the affidavits were written by Hurlbut, since the style is the same throughout. It may be noted also that although five out of the eight had heard Spaulding's story only once, there was a surprising uniformity in the details they remembered after 22 years. Six recalled the names Nephi, Lamanite, etc. Six held that the manuscript described the Indians as descendants of the Lost Ten Tribes. The very tightness with which Hurlbut here was implementing his theory rouses an immediate suspicion that he did a little judicious prompting. Interestingly enough, there's also a statement from a neighbor who was not interviewed by Hurlbut that said Spaulding had nothing to do with the Book of Mormon. Anyway, the affidavits are obviously suspicious and obtained by a guy hell-bent on destroying Joseph Smith. But they're there. The next question is, where then is this mysterious decades-old manuscript? Hurlbut went searching. He spoke with Spaulding's widow, who said she did recall a work called Manuscript Found that might be what he's looking for. Hurlbut found an unfinished manuscript that was said to have been translated from 24 Latin scrolls found in a cave. It would make sense to call this Manuscript Found, but it clearly had nothing to do with the Book of Mormon. Hurlbut showed it to those who signed the affidavits who said, no, that's not it. There, there must be another manuscript. Brody, who, remember, is a critic of the church, said it seems more likely that these witnesses had so come to identify the Book of Mormon with the Spalding manuscript that they could not concede having made an error without admitting to a case of memory substitution, which they did not themselves recognize. So, Hurlbut continued his search for a mysterious second manuscript. Spaulding's widow said Spaulding took manuscript found a couple of times to a publisher in Pittsburgh, the office of Patterson and Lambden. But, as it turns out, Patterson and Lambden didn't exist until two years after Spaulding's death. So, as you might guess, Hurlbut found no manuscript there and hit a dead end. But the conspiracy only thickens. The manuscript, you see, was of course unpublished. Joseph Smith couldn't just pick it up at the local library. So how do we place this mythical manuscript into Joseph's hands? Well, Hurlbut reasoned, the Latter-day Saint leader Sidney Rigdon used to live in Pittsburgh. He must have gotten a hold of the manuscript that there's no evidence of from the publishing company that didn't yet exist, must have secretly taken it to Joseph Smith some 300 miles away, and just like that, the Book of Mormon. Oh, and also don't forget, Sidney was a convert to the church and didn't even hear about Joseph Smith until late 1830, after the Book of Mormon was published, so yeah. Brody said the tenuous chain of evidence accumulated to support the Spaulding-Rigdon theory breaks all together when it tries to prove that Rigdon met Joseph before 1830. Another antagonist of the Latter-day Saints named Davis Bayes wrote that the Spaulding-Rigdon theory is erroneous and it will lead to almost certain defeat. The facts are all opposed to this view and the defenders of the Mormon dogma have the facts well in hand. The Spaulding story is a failure. Do not attempt to rely upon it. It will let you down. And indeed, the theory is ridiculous. The only thing it has going for it are the affidavits, which are clearly problematic. Even career critics of our faith 
throw this theory in the trash. But if you want to dive deep, check out the links in the description. After the Spalding Rigdon theory sort of tanked, people of course scrambled to find an alternate explanation for how the Book of Mormon exists. We'll take a look at the Ethan Smith view of the Hebrews theory in our next episode. I'll see you there. Have a great day. All right, so uh, welcome to the world of straw man arguments. Um, and that's exactly what this is. He, he just set up a straw man, an argument that obviously is not in use. I mean, I didn't, I actually went back to look at my, the video I did four years ago of refuting Greg Trimble's uh, blog about the Book of Mormon. I never used the, talked about Sidney Rigdon or any of these guys or Spalding or anything. The reality is, is the majority of the Book of Mormon, uh, or a huge portion of the Book of Mormon, maybe not the majority, is plagiarized from the King James Bible. Who cares about manuscript found or view of the Hebrews or any of these other things? That the the plagiarism from the Bible is enough to show the 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 fallacy within the Book of Mormon, and so this argument, this is again, this is. I'm really convinced that faith and beliefs is going to go away um, soon because they're literally falling back on let's refute an argument that nobody uses. And they literally even showed you the people. I mean, the the Fawn Brody and at Bayes or whatever this dude's name was that have said, don't use this argument. So no one uses this argument. This is literally, they're going back to an argument that may have been used almost 200 years ago, not been used, I guarantee you, I don't know any apologist, Christian apologist, uh, in the last two decades that has used this argument. And so why, why refute it? And what it is is that, it seems to give them the appearance of refuting an argument. They got to have something that they can knock down. So they set up their straw man and it's easily knocked over because it's an argument that is pointless. It's not used by anybody who is in the mainstream of Mormon apologetics um, or anti-Mormon apologetics, if you want to put it that way. So they're re- literally just tearing down a non-existent argument to look like they've got a victory. They're, I mean, again, very desperate in their attempts at uh, proving anything to be true. So, again, this was a, a five-minute waste of time. You know, I mean, okay, great, David, well done. You set up an argument that nobody used and you knocked it right back down again. Congratulations. You proved nothing. And that's all there is to it. So, um, yeah, there you go. I'm not sure I really needed to do anything, but we do what we do because we said that we would. And again, I keep talking about me like I have somebody else here in a room by myself with a camera and a microphone. <laughs> and uh, there you go. And that becomes the royal we. So thanks for watching. 
Remember, preach the gospel at all times. Use words. They are necessary. Until next time, Soli Deo Gloria. Mm.